Hey, we're continuing our series called, uh, called Kingdom this weekend, and as I was preparing for this, I, I saw the, the new trailer uh, for the new Star Wars movie coming out. Has anybody seen that? And I gotta be honest with you, I've been really disengaged from the whole Star Wars franchise ever since Jar Jar Binks ruined it for me several years ago. Uh, but it did, when I saw this trailer, it made me want to re-engage, it made me want to go see the movie. It took me back to a time and a place when I was a little kid sitting in a big old dingy movie theater and this big old screen and then those words scrolled down that screen a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? And it, it just made me kind of just remember back to that and want to see that and it's about this battle being waged between the evil empire and the rebels and you could substitute the word kingdom for empire I mean ultimately at the end of the day Star Wars is just a kings and kingdom story I remember the first time I saw the trailer for uh, Lord of the Rings, just sitting in a theater going, I can't wait till that comes out. I want to see that. Or I remember the first time that I read uh, the story of King Arthur, this good king with his knights of the round table and how he ruled in this magical, mythical place called Camelot. And why is it that when I read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia to my boys at night, they do something that they never do. They sit still and be quiet. Why, why, why is that? And every year or so, there's at least one or two epic movies about an old king or ruler, a good one or a bad one, and we keep telling these stories about kingdoms, and these stories keep capturing our attention. How else do you explain the success of a TV show like Game of Thrones? It seems there always is room in our imagination and our minds to dream about kings and kingdoms. I've actually been studying the, book of the, the couple books in the Old Testament, First and Second Kings, which are all about... You're, yes, exactly. All about the kings of Israel, okay? And, and as I've been studying that, I've been learning something about just kind of a pattern that occurs in kingdoms with kings. And it goes like this. When a certain kind of king reigns, certain things happen. When a certain kind of king reigns, certain things happen. So when a bad king reigns, certain things happen every time. So here's what happens when a bad king reigns. The poor get mistreated. The rich get prioritized. Losers keep losing. Winners keep winning. Cheaters and swindlers get catered to. Those who suffer loss get abused. The sexually immoral get rewarded. Those who desire to do the right thing get laughed at. Those who show mercy get none in return. Those who have pure motives go unrewarded. And those who seek peace go it alone. I mean, think about this in historical context, not just about kings and queens, but think about rulers, good ones and bad ones. When bad rulers take the world stage, what happens? Bad things, right? Think about those, those huge moments in history, people like Hitler and Mao and Stalin. When bad rulers rule, bad things happen. Pretty simple equation, right? Now, when another kind of king reigns, different things happen. When a good king reigns, the poor receive help. Those of lesser status get included. Those who suffer loss receive comfort. Doing the right thing is valued and mercy is honored. Purity is modeled and peace is pursued. So think about those good moments in history, right, where good rulers ruled. And think about the kinds of things that happen when good rulers rule. When good kings reign, good things happen. So on this day that we've been looking at when Jesus uh, drew this really big crowd of people and he sat on this hillside and delivered this very famous sermon. He was speaking to a group of very unfortunate people in unfortunate circumstances. They lived in the kingdom of Israel, but it had been taken away from them by the Roman Empire. The empire had taken their pride, taken their dignity, marginalized them and ostracized them in their own land. They, they, they'd watch every day as their men are hung on crosses, they're being persecuted. 
And Jesus has been walking around this, this captured kingdom making a very strange announcement. He keeps saying over and over again, the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. And in light of the fact that the kingdom of heaven is near, he says it's time to repent, right? We've been learning that means to rethink your strategy for life, right? To lean your life against someone and something else and then to act accordingly to what you're actually leaning your life against. But because of their unfortunate circumstances, a lot of folks had resorted to fear and isolation. It's what people do. When things get really, really hard, people have a tendency to start worrying about only themselves. Like, don't, I can't worry about my neighbor. I've got to feed my family. I've got to take care of myself. I've got to lock my door at night. I can't reach out to anybody else. It's a dog-eat-dog world. But Jesus was announcing something different. Jesus was saying there's a different kingdom with different values and a different king, and it's available right here, right now. And that was very confusing. Rightfully so to everybody who's listening to him on that day because their concept of a kingdom was a very physical one. The nation of Israel had this long, sordid history of kings and, and kingdoms, some ups but mostly downs. They had kind of the glory days, so to speak, of King David and King Solomon, but after that, the kingdom was fractured and was led by mostly really, really bad kings, evil kings like King Ahab, and they knew the difference historically between when a good king reigns and when a bad king reigns. When bad kings reign, bad things happen. This is the, how the world worked. This was what was tangible. This is what was real to them. So a lot of them were hoping when Jesus made this announcement that the kingdom of heaven is near, what they were hoping that meant was, okay, we're going to overthrow the Roman government and Jesus is going to be the king who's going to sit on the throne and he's going to be a good king like King David was. That was their hope. That was the reality that they wanted. Jesus is announcing there is a kingdom and it's here but a lot of them didn't understand what that meant. While some of the people gathered on that hillside on that day, they had been healed by Jesus. Some of them who couldn't see could see again. Some of them couldn't hear could hear again. Some of them were sick were made well. That happened for some of them. But most of the people gathered on that hillside on that day when Jesus delivered this famous sermon, their circumstances hadn't changed. They've been following Jesus around a little bit, interacting with him a little bit, but the reality is their circumstances were the same. They were still poor, they were still abused, they were still looked down on, and in the economy of the kingdom that they lived in, your circumstances were the primary indicator of your status in that kingdom. But Jesus was saying something different when he made this announcement in this famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, that Jim recited the entire thing last week, which he was exactly right, it's the best sermon he's ever plagiarized, that was awesome. How's the Bible memory going, by the way? Good, bad, in between? Yeah, okay. Hey, uh, if you're bad at memorizing stuff, I'm with you. I'm really, really bad at memorizing things. If they could figure out a way uh, to put the Sermon on the Mount to a 90s rap song, I would have it down, all right, because that's, that's how my brain works. I know every rap song from the 90s, but I haven't discovered that yet, so what I'm doing, maybe this will work for you. I'm an auditory learner, so I use my Bible app on my phone in my car uh, when I'm driving to the gym and to work and stuff like that, and I just hit play and let it read to me, and all the voices are creepy. I can't find like a James Earl Jones voice. That's what I want, but um, <clears throat> it reads to me, and then I press pause, and then I say it back, and then I press play, and then I say it back, and all that kind of thing. So that's what I've been doing. Um, now, Jim last week recited the Sermon on the Mount in a, uh, in a version of the Bible called the NIV 84 version of the Bible. Um, most of the time around here, we use um, what's called the English Standard Version, or ESVs. That's what's in the Bibles in the back, uh, but what we gave you last week printed out was NIV 84. So when we go through the Sermon on the Mount, 
now, uh, we'll be going through the NIV 84 text, but no matter what uh, version you're using, keep going. And I have an announcement of grace for you. I'm only able to get through nine verses today, so you get an extension on your homework, all right? Next week, we'll come in with all 12 verses memorized, all right? So here we go, Um, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, verse 1. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And you've got to believe you got to believe that the people on that mountainside on that day were scratching their heads when Jesus said this because after all, the word blessed literally translates fortunate or happy. It's almost like Jesus is turning everything upside down and seeing everything backwards. He's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. you got to be kidding me, Jesus. Fortunate are those who mourn. What are you talking about? Happy are the meek? I'm sorry, Jesus. What world do you live in? That's a really good question, actually. A better question might go like this. Jesus, what kingdom do you live in? And I believe Jesus would respond by saying, the real one, the one that you live in as well, you just don't see it. Well, that just doesn't make sense, does it? Because based on what I can see and feel and taste and touch and smell, Jesus, the way I see things is you got it all wrong. You have it all upside down. I don't know if you've looked around lately, Jesus, but things aren't going well. And I think our reaction is going to be the same as the reaction of most of the people on that hillside 2,000 years ago. See, when Jesus sat on top of that mountain and started making this announcement, he was talking to an entirely Jewish audience. And for the people who were watching on this day as Jesus walked up on the side of this mountain and sat down and began to deliver this sermon, for them it would have been like watching an old movie they had seen once in black and white, now in color. Because for them, they had this historical memory of Moses who had gone up on a mountain and received the Ten Commandments and brought that back down to God's people. It's one of the most famous moments in all of their history. So this looks like on this day that Jesus is delivering this new law. Now here's the thing, okay? Religion, write this down, do not miss this, okay? Religion always obscures God's motives. Always. So when I say religion, what I mean is this, this attitude towards God that goes, I do for you so that you will do for me. It's quid pro quo. That's religion. It's not a relationship. It's I do things for God so he'll do things for me. That's what religion is at the end of the day. So religion, that perspective, that paradigm always obscures God's intentions and motives. So when God, who's a good king, gave his people laws, it wasn't because God was out to spoil their fun. God's not some kind of cosmic killjoy. No, he's a good king. And good kings always have what? Good laws in their kingdom. No kingdom has ever existed that did not have laws and rules. No good household exists without good rules, right? Why? Because you hate your children and you don't want good for them? No, exactly the opposite. Because you love your children and you do want good for them. And when there's an absence of maturity, there has to be the presence of more rules. So as the level of maturity increases, the amount of rules decreases right? That's just kind of how it naturally works. That's how it works in a kingdom. That's how it works in a household. Now, I'll give you an example. We had to make a rule in my house this past week that I didn't know that we needed to have, okay? This happens as a parent all the time. Your, your, your immature child will do something that you never thought they would do, and then all of a sudden you have to have a rule so that they won't do that again. That's kind of how it works, right? So I'm outside, and I'm building planter boxes with uh, my oldest son, Eli, 
<clears throat> all right, he's nine years old. Uh, we're shoveling landscaping rock, and it's cold, and it's rainy, kind of like today. And um, all of a sudden, I hear my five-year-old son from somewhere, I don't know where, say, hey, Dad. And I stop for a second and go, Silas, what? He's like, guess where I am? Like, I, sounds like you're on the back porch to me, buddy. And then he just keeps talking. And to be honest with you, I just kind of ignored him and we went back to work. Well, a little while later, my wife comes to me and says, do you know what your son did? <laughs> and whenever, it's always my son when he does something wrong. But if he makes the honor roll, it's like, guess what my son did, you know? <laughs> like, oh, no, what did my son, what did my son do? She goes, guess where I found him? I was like, where? She said, on the roof. It's like, really? She's like, yeah, you know when he was talking to you earlier and you kind of ignored him? I was like, yeah. He's like, he was on the roof. It's like, oh, how do you do that? We went up through our bathroom, climbed through the tub, pushed out the screen in the window next to the tub and went out and sat on the roof and thought that was a good idea. Now we have a rule, no kids on the roof. <laughs> Didn't have to have that before. Now, Silas thinks I'm just trying to spoil his fun. Why? Because he's immature, he's five, right? He doesn't realize that my intentions as a good parent, sometimes, is to keep him alive and not to fall off the roof. But when, when you have an immature person, they obscure the motives of the good king or the good ruler. This is what religion always does. So on this day, Jesus is not delivering a new law, so to speak. He's actually saying, no, 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 this is what it looks like when God's people understand God's intentions for them. This is what it looks like. It's, it's beyond rule following. Maturity increases. This is what it really looks like. He's revealing the spirit of the law that was always present to begin with. So he makes this announcement. And probably a lot of our hearts, when we hear those words that we've already read, we have this temptation, because we always gravitate towards religion, because it's clean and simple. We have this temptation to moralize the Sermon on the Mount, to moralize the whole thing, to turn it into a list of laws and rules that we have to do so that God will accept us and love us and so that we can belong with him. And that would be, my friends, the exact opposite of what Jesus had in mind when he made this announcement on this day. In fact, if you read through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you will find that it's absolutely impossible for anyone to live up to this sermon. I would go so far as to say this. If the Sermon on the Mount is a list of laws and rules and regulations that we've got to keep in order to gain acceptance into God's kingdom, then this is the worst news that's ever been delivered in the history of the universe, and we have no hope. You cannot read it that way. See, last week when Jim recited the whole thing, I was sitting like, like right over there, and I, I'll be honest with you, I was trying to listen to it as, as a person who'd never heard it before. Like, what, what would that be like? To, as some, I've heard it like thousands of times, but I tried to like put all that away and hear it fresh and new for the first time. And as you listen to that, man, there's some grenades in this sermon, aren't there? I mean, there's some countercultural, hard to handle, unbelievably difficult things to hear in that sermon. So look, my, my contention is this. If you're looking for easy to digest, soft, run-of-the-mill self-help, do not go to Jesus. Go to Barnes & Noble. Seriously. I mean, if you're looking for religious advice about moral improvement, do not go to Jesus. It'll, no, no, no. That's not what this is about. I love the way John Piper puts it. He says this. Moral improvement of the old you is not what you need. New life is what the whole world needs. It's radical and supernatural. It's outside our control. The dead do not give themselves new life. That is what the Bible teaches from cover to cover. We are not in need of moral improvement. We're in need of new life. We're in need of a new heart, which is precisely what God has always been offering his people 
Old Testament, New Testament, always. Listen to the words of the prophet Ezekiel. Listen to this. And I will give you a what? Give me the phrase. New heart and a new spirit. And I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And here's a great word. Cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people. And I will be your God. Now, notice. Notice what precedes rule keeping and obedience. What comes first? What comes before any rule keeping or obedience? A new heart, a new spirit. Then God goes so far as to say this I will what? Cause you. What's that mean? Cause. That's what it means. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So when Jesus says something so absolutely impossible, like he does in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, be perfect then, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's impossible. C.S. Lewis is right when he reflects on that command by saying, he is going to make us into the kind of creatures that can obey that command. That's the end game. That's where God is taking us. See, before you can do anything pleasing to God, before your obedience will be anything other than a pile of filthy rags before the king, what is required of you and what is required of me is the one thing that you and I cannot do. Dallas Willard said it really, really well. He said this, we cannot keep the law by trying to keep the law. You ever notice that? You focus all your attention on trying to keep the rules, you'll do a pretty bad job of keeping the rules. Because it's not very motivating at the end of the day. Jesus always spoke in these terms. One day early in Jesus' ministry, he was hanging out with this really well-known religious guy named Nicodemus. He was he a was really, really well-known guy. He was one of the rulers of the Jews, and Nicodemus was kind of embarrassed to be seen with Jesus, so he comes and hangs out with him at night, hoping that nobody will notice what's going on. And in John chapter 3, verse 2, this is the way it goes down. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Unless you're born again, you cannot what? See the kingdom of God. In other words, none of this will make sense. None of this will add up. It'll all look upside down and backwards until you are born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus, when he hears that phrase, be born again, he's really confused and rightfully so because if you and I were just to hear that fresh and new like we'd never heard that before and stripped away all the evangelical baggage and terminology, that sounds really, really what? Weird, gross, strange, but mostly it sounds what? Impossible. It sounds impossible, and that's what Nicodemus' reaction is. Look at verse 4. How can a man be born when he's old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Question, how much do you participate in your birth? All the mothers in the room said, zero. Zero, right? You, you do not born yourself. You do not birth yourself. Someone what? Gives birth to you. Someone else does that. Someone gives birth to you. It is no different in the kingdom of God. God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. 
Those words that Jesus uses were supposed to remind Nicodemus of the verses we just read in Ezekiel, which Nicodemus would have had memorized, by the way. He uses those words, spirit and flesh. It's going to remove our old hearts and give us new hearts of flesh and put his spirit in us. That's what Jesus is talking about. So if you get the order wrong, meaning if you think obedience precedes birth, man, you are going to see the Sermon on the Mount as the worst news that's ever been delivered. But if you see this correctly, which is birth precedes obedience, then, oh man, you'll see this correctly. You'll see this as a radical announcement of the kingdom of God and who it's available to. You'll see it as a radical declaration from King Jesus that his kingdom welcomes and includes the least expected. You will see this as a radical announcement of grace. Because that's what it is. And this gift of new life is available right now, forever, in the real eternal kingdom of the heavens. And this will be the best news that you have ever heard. See, Jesus on that hill 2,000 years ago was declaring to all who were listening, this is who is welcomed into my kingdom. This is who my kingdom is available to. Remember what we said when good kings reign, certain kinds of things happen? So he makes this announcement. Blessed, fortunate, happy, included are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize that what they need is not moral improvement of their old selves, but what they in fact need is a new heart. What they need is to be born again. What they need is the one thing they cannot do for themselves. Theirs, Jesus says, is the kingdom of heaven. They, even people like that, are accepted in Jesus' kingdom. So let me ask you a question. Do you have zero confidence in your own ability to live up to God's expectations? Good. You're blessed. You're fortunate. That's what Jesus says. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who've suffered loss, been defeated, or living in grief. Blessed are those who've learned a really important life lesson of what's most important, even though they've had to learn it in a really difficult way through losing. For in the kingdom of heaven, there's hope, there's confidence, and there's comfort. In the kingdom of heaven, here's the comfort that's available only inside the kingdom of heaven. I have four children on this earth in the kingdom of heaven. I have five because my wife had a miscarriage before we ever had our other four children. And I believe that in the kingdom of heaven, I will get to see my fifth child one day. That's the kind of comfort that's available in the kingdom of heaven. That's the kind of comfort that you can find through King Jesus, who's a good king. Blessed are the meek. Think about it this way. If you were in charge of empowering all the rulers of the universe and all the rulers of the earth and things like that, what kind of people would you empower? Would you empower people who can't control themselves, who just run around with unbridled restraint and anger and just explode on people everywhere they go? Or would you empower people who have strength under control? Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the what? The earth. Those are the kinds of rulers that King Jesus is going to empower in his kingdom and let lead in his kingdom. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who have this intense desire to see justice, as the Old Testament prophet Amos would say, roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, for they will be satisfied, Jesus says. They will see it happen in the kingdom of the heavens. God hasn't, here's, what, here's something we need to understand, right? God hasn't missed anything. God's never been asleep at the wheel. God's never been tricked or deceived or mocked. No one's ever pulled the wool over his eyes. 
justice will be delivered for all wrongdoing. Either, here's the two deals on the table, on the form of Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross when he absorbed and received all the punishment that we who put our faith and trust and hope in him so justly deserved, or the other deal on the table is you can take your own medicine, you can take your own punishment, And to a lot of people in this room who've been wronged and abused and held down and mistreated, you know what that's called? Good news. God didn't miss what happened to you. And what happened to you will be punished. It was either punished in the form of Jesus on the cross or the person who did that to you will be punished because God is a just God. And to a lot of people in the room, we've been the ones who've done the mistreating. That's also very good news because it means this. We can run to the cross, put our faith in Jesus Trust that the punishment that we deserve was given to Jesus. See, God is just. He's also merciful, which is why Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who understand that God has given mercy to them, that God has not given us what we deserve when he sent his one and only son. He, in fact, gave us what we do not deserve, which is called grace. And it's only out of grace that people in the kingdom of God can extend mercy to one another in the kingdom of the heavens. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who've been given this brand new, pure heart. And blessed are those who know that that heart is something to be guarded because it's the wellspring of life. They will see God. God is the most pure being in the universe. In the kingdom of the heavens, they will get to lock eyes with the king. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who seek whole, right, beautiful relationships with people instead of stirring up trouble and conflict for the sake of conflict and blowing things up everywhere they go. They shall be called what? Sons of God. In other words, people will look at them and go, they're just like their father in heaven because ultimately our father in heaven did what? He made peace with us by sending his one and only son on our behalf to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. See, Jesus is saying, look at me. This is the kind of king I am. And you'll notice that Jesus perfectly displays all of those things. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. He's all of those things. He's all of those things. And Jesus is saying, these are the kind of people who are included. That's called grace. And this is the way things work in my kingdom. That's called truth. Grace and truth. The kind of people that are usually walked all over, left out and abused when a bad king reigns, are precisely the kind of people who are included when Jesus, a good king, reigns. Now, Remember his audience on that day. Don't forget, they're broken, they're disheveled, they're hurting, and they're marginalized people who've come to believe because they've been taught their entire life by religious people that their circumstances are a direct reflection of their status with God. So what they've been told is this. Hey, you're poor, guess why? Because of the sin in your life. Yeah, your dad died, guess why? Because you've been screwing up for so long. You can't get ahead, of course you can't get ahead because you're not religious enough. See, religion always obscures God's intentions. And when you get that wrong, you respond with the wrong religious remedy to those circumstances, which is always the same thing. Try harder. Just try harder. Be better at being good. This is what they've learned. This is what they've had drilled into their heads and their hearts their entire lives. This is what they've been taught. You're not good at being good. Try harder. Which always leads to a few places. See if you've ever been in one of these places. Depression. 
Depression. I'm not good enough, and based on what I'm being told is required of me to be good enough, it's quite obvious I'll never be good enough, so there's no hope. Depression. Or, other end of the pendulum, arrogance. I'm pretty good at being good. They're pretty bad at being good. I'm glad I'm not them. Arrogance. Or, here's one we land in all the time, blame. I'm doing everything I thought I was supposed to do in order for you to do for me what you said you would do for me or what they told me you said you would do for me, God. And my life still sucks, so this is your fault. You're not living up to your end of the bargain. It's your fault, God. You ever been in one of those places? See, Jesus comes along and gives us a new perspective in his kingdom. Another way. Right here, right now, you're welcome you're included, and your circumstances, regardless of how good or bad they are, are not an indicator of how much God loves you, much less a disqualifier in regards to being accepted into his kingdom. And he's saying, in light of what's real, in light of the kind of king you have, in light of the long run, how things are going to work best, this is the kind of life that's worth living and pursuing. And the only way that you're able to live it, and the only way that you're able to pursue it, is if, if you've been given a new heart. And if you have God's spirit living in you. And I believe that our first response to this radical announcement that Jesus is making is first of all to say, that's not true. Our response to grace is always, the first response is always, that's too good to be true. And then our second response is this, that won't work. That won't work. We always, our first response to God's truth is always, that won't work. God, you're outdated, you're so old-fashioned, you don't know how things work now. We say this, based on what I've seen and experienced, Jesus, what you're saying isn't true. In fact, everything you're saying is exactly upside down. And even if I were to pursue being that kind of person, it would only backfire, it wouldn't work, it's not pragmatic at the end of the day. To which I would say, maybe, all depends on what kind of king is on the throne. And that takes us back to where we began. Listen, There is someone or something that you believe is of ultimate importance in your life. And whoever or whatever that is, is your king. And whoever or whatever you believe is your king will determine your strategy for life. And your strategy is either the right one or the wrong one. It's that simple. So, if the king on the throne is money, then you're right. Jesus is wrong and you shouldn't do anything that he has to say. But you do have to wonder why it seems to be true that your level of happiness doesn't always seem to track in the same direction as your bank account and you do have to wonder what would happen if it all got taken away and maybe just maybe you would speculate that maybe Jesus was right when he said that money makes a horrible master king right if the king on the throne in your life is another person then yeah you're right what Jesus says won't work best but you got to ask yourself this question what happens if you lose that person Or, this has been so many of our stories, what happens if that person who's playing king in your life becomes a really bad king, becomes a tyrant, then what? If the king on the throne is fitness, then you're right. You you don't need to follow Jesus' advice here, but you do have to ask the question, what happens when all the PRs stop and you can't run marathons anymore and you can't power clean a tractor anymore? What then? If the king on the throne is power, then you're right. Don't do what Jesus says. By all means, go throw your weight around, push people around, become king of the mountain. But one day, you will have to ask yourself this question. Why is it so lonely up here on this mountain? 
You might want to ask yourself this question now. Why is it so unsatisfying to get ahead by hurting other people? And why are some of the loneliest people in the world the most powerful people in the world? Why is that? Huh. See, if the king on the throne is, of your life is seeing punishment doled out to all those who deserve to be punished, mercy is for the weak is your motto, right? Then don't be the kind of person that Jesus is describing here. But you do have to wonder what happens when you slip up and when you mess up and when you get found out and your secrets get exposed and what happens when that keen sense of justice you have gets turned, rightfully so, on yourself. <clears throat> Here's the deal. If Jesus is not king and this is not his kingdom, then what he says we shouldn't pay attention to at all. He's just another liar or delusional cult leader and we should ignore him altogether. But here's the deal. I believe this. There is a king and he really is on the throne and what Jesus describes really is how things work best in his kingdom, whether you see it or not. Whether you see it or not. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot what? See the kingdom of God. So my question for you today is really simple. Can you see it? Can you see it? And if not, if your response to Jesus' announcement is simply that's wrong, that's backwards, that's upside down, then that means that you don't have a new spirit, you don't have a new heart, and all you need to do is ask for it. Ask for it and he will give to you. He'll give you eyes to see and he'll give you a heart to feel it. Don't ask for moral transformation of your old self, but ask for a new self. For those of us who we do have a new heart, we do have been born again, sometimes it's difficult to see, but we know, we feel, and when we see Jesus and hear Jesus say these words at our deepest level, we know he's right. He's absolutely right. He's telling the truth. And in his kingdom, this is how things work best because after all, he is a good king. Yeah, in the kingdom of the heavens, everything is upside down. The things we were tempted to believe were of ultimate importance, yeah, they're still important, but they're not of ultimate importance. One of the greatest temptations in life is to take good things and make them king things and put them on the throne. But everything finds its proper place in the kingdom of heaven because King Jesus is in his proper place on the throne, which means no one and nothing else is, which means all those other good things can find their proper place in his kingdom and they don't become destructive things because they're not ultimate things. They're just things. Money, marriage, sex, family, fame, power, business, friendship, community, all those things find their rightful place under the rule of good King Jesus. I've heard, I don't even remember where it was, but it stuck with me for a long, long time. God's kingdom best described this way. God's people in God's place living under God's rule and blessing. God's people in God's place living under God's rule and blessing. In fact, if you read the whole Bible under that banner, all of a sudden it starts to make sense. It makes a lot of sense. So if this is true, if we have a good king, and his kingdom is available to us right now and forever, then that should and would impact our lives. So in light of that, let me ask you some questions. If all this is true, then what would you stop pursuing and what would you start pursuing? Your life has been about something. What does your life need to be about? What would you stop fighting for? And what would you start fighting for? What battles would you fight? What battles would you not fight? What would you stop doing to others and what would you start doing for others? Do you see the difference? What would you stop doing to yourself and what would you start doing for yourself? 
What would you aggressively remove from your life and what would you aggressively add to your life? See, when a certain kind of king reigns, life looks different for everyone in his kingdom. And I want to wrap up today just declaring this one simple truth that our God reigns forever. His kingdom reigns. And in his kingdom, the typically excluded get included. The unfortunate are fortunate. And this is how things actually work. Let's all stand. Let's sing and declare this together.